I invite you to take a Bible now and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. We'll read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, in its entirety. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pew, you'll find this on page 757, uh, is where it begins. And this is Matthew, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And that concludes our reading for this morning. There's just four words that I'd like to highlight this morning from this passage. That hopefully makes most of 
the content of it easy for us to remember and reflect upon in the week ahead. Um, but the first word is wisdom. Wisdom. It says, after the birth of Jesus, we don't know exactly how much after, but it reveals to us one of the limitations when we try to visually depict the nativity scene uh, is that usually when we visualize that in a nativity scene, we kind of collapse the time frame of events so that everything can be seen at one time. Uh, and so we often see the wise men in most people's nativity scene because we know they're part of the story, but when we read about it, we sense and discover that there's a greater distance between when all of those things took place. And so we, we know that it's after the birth, and later on we hear uh, from Herod as he's doing the math on exactly when this could have been, that there's about at least a two-year time frame of possibility of when the birth took place that we celebrated last week to then the appearing of these men in Jerusalem to come and meet this new king take place. But they're uh, introduced to us as wise men from the east who came to Jerusalem. And their question is, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And so what we discovered uh, beginning in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel is that everything that was there implicitly, as we said, this genealogy uh, pointing us back to David is highlighting the birth of a new king. What was implicit in chapter 1 is explicit here in chapter 2. I mean, this is the question that they have as they come to Jerusalem. They know that a new king has been born, and this new king is the king of the Jews, and we don't know how many people would have been uh, in their company as they would have traveled a long distance to come and be there. But in their wisdom, as they saw signs of his coming, their desire was to come and trace in their understanding uh, where that would take place and to go to the source uh, of, of where they might get more information about this with a, a hunger and a desire to recognize a new king. And there's a wisdom in giving honor to new authority when it takes place. That often happens uh, even in our environment when there's an election and we now know who the winner of it is. Oftentimes, dignitaries from around the world will make a congratulatory phone call. And they'll say, hey, we've heard that you're going to be the new person in charge and we just want to say hello and we want to start off on, on good terms in our congratulating you or honoring you uh, in, the, in the newfound authority that it is that you have. And these wise men come seeking out the king and desiring to show great honor to him. And it's a, it's a portrait for us of wisdom that there is a searching after truth. And we might wonder, well, how exactly did they get this sign? And, and what does it mean that they were following the stars? And, and, and we don't know all of the, the details of, of how this would have transpired, but what is clear is that God is able to communicate to anyone and everyone who is genuinely seeking after him. That God is not limited by time and geography and the ways that we are, or language. There's a sense that because of Israel's uh, previous history is that God had ambassadors in many parts of the world who would have been talking about the Messiah and the hope that Israel had of the Messiah. When Jesus was born, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt, in Alexandria. 
such a large group that they translated the entire Old Testament into the modern Greek, which everybody spoke, so that the world at the time then had access to read and understand, or at least hear, the Old Testament scriptures, not in Hebrew only, but primarily in their everyday tongue of Greek. And God had witnesses of his people in Rome, in Jewish communities. There were Jewish communities who had been taken at the various points of the ending of the northern kingdom and then the ending of the southern kingdom in their reign, in first taken by Babylon, and then as Babylon was conquered by Persia all along the way. If you remember a few names in your Old Testament, like Daniel and some of his friends, God had his people as outposts or ambassadors throughout the known world. And we don't know the full story of what it was that Daniel and his friends had done and the people that they had influenced and how they might have shaped some of the expectations of these wise men. But we know that that's part of the story, that God was able to take what the enemy meant for evil and ultimately to bring about, in many different ways, good and beautiful things. That people that were genuinely seeking after God in Egypt would have been able to hear the scriptures. People who were genuinely seeking after God in Persia or anywhere in the East might have heard the testimony of the wisdom of somebody like Daniel that far exceeded the wisdom of all of their wise people. And they, if they had a hunger for and a desire to know more and to seek it, we get a glimpse of how God could have ministered to them in far-off lands. And so again, it's reiterating that this king of the Jews is the hope of the Gentiles. And God-fearing Gentiles all along throughout the Old Testament, but we see it increasingly in the New Testament, discover that this Messiah is a Messiah for them as well. This king is not only their king, but our king, worthy of honor and respect. And that's where true wisdom lies, in seeking after him, hungering for the truth, wanting to know more about who God is and what he's done through the sending of his son. It says Herod summoned the wise men he knew about uh, to get more information about where this was going to take place. And so he gathers all of the religious leaders together. They know their Bibles, and so they have a sense of where this is supposed to take place. And so they point to Bethlehem as the place of birth. And so they know enough to also wisely express where this new king would be born. <clears throat> and so the, the wise men are sent there. And they go seeking after him. It's, a, it's an unfortunate reality and a sad reality that the wise men go there mostly by themselves or with the entourage that they would have come with them. Because with all the buzz that would have taken place in Jerusalem, and as Herod gathered together the chief priests and the elders, and they clearly had the information and expectation of where it would be, don't you think they'd want to go along? <laughs> that they themselves would want to see if this was really true or not? But all that we hear about are that the wise men are sent to go investigate further. But in them, we have this beautiful portrait of wisdom. 
And then extending further, not only wisdom, but wisdom ultimately expressed in extravagance. When in your wisdom you've discovered that there is a God who controls the stars and the planets and also gives life and breath to every human being, what's the wise response to that? Adoration, worship, honor. And that's what they do. Uh, they know that in coming to, uh, to see this new king, this happens again a lot of times from heads of government to heads of government or royalty to royalty. When you're giving a gift, you, you know you're not trying to help meet somebody's basic needs. Uh, you, you're not trying to give them something they probably don't have or couldn't or shouldn't get on their own. But you want to enter into the joy of what's taking place by giving a gift that shows your sense of honor. And it usually comes through extravagance. And so I read this uh, reflection on the wise men and their gift and found it really helpful. Um, this is by John Piper. and says, The Gifts of the Magi. We know, according to Acts 17, that God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. The gifts of the Magi are not given by way of assistance or need meeting. It would dishonor a monarch if foreign visitors came with royal care packages. Nor are these gifts meant to be bribes. Deuteronomy 10.17 says that God takes no bribe. Well, then what do they mean, and how are they worshipped? Gifts given to wealthy, self-sufficient people are echoes and intensifiers of the giver's desire to show how wonderful the person is. In a sense, giving gifts to Christ is like fasting, going without something to show that Christ is more valuable than what you're going without. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich by bartering with you or negotiating some payment, I've come to you not for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, by giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I'm saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure and not these things. It's a beautiful description of their gift, that it's a way for them to show a sense of honor through their extravagance, to say, we want you more than all these things, and so we can freely give these things that the world treasures so much. But it's our way of telling the world how much we treasure you. So the first word is wisdom, the second extravagance. But then the third word is wickedness. At the same time that we have this amazing portrait in Matthew chapter 2 of wisdom, we also have an amazing portrait of wickedness. That Herod, we get in, in a very short period a, a visualization of how quickly a sinful heart leads to more sin if it doesn't repent and turns from its ways, it gets worse and worse. 
And so Herod hears the announcement of a king. He becomes jealous and nervous about that. He inquires about what this might mean. Then he lies to the wise men to say, hey, I want you to go and then come back so that I can honor uh, the king in the same way that you want to. And so he's mostly operating on pride and fear. And then because of that, he's willing to lie. And then when he discovers that he's been fooled, that the the wise men are not going along with his plan, he takes it out on an entire town of people. And, and not just a town, but even it indicates a bit of a surrounding area. And most commentators suggest that that could have been up to about 20 children that would have lost their lives because of the wickedness of Herod. Because rather than him, in wisdom, desiring to honor and glorify and be extravagant towards the king, uh, what we see in him is the exact opposite. That in his pride and then hatred and rage, he commits an atrocity. Something that doesn't make any sense. And what we learn about Herod in history is that this wasn't something he simply did to other people. This was something he actually did to members of his own family at times. That whenever he was suspicious that somebody might be a threat to his power, he executed them. So much so that it's said in history that even on the last day of his life, knowing that at that point, because of so much wickedness on his heart, uh, that most people would actually celebrate when he was gone and not be sad when he was gone, that he ordered even more damage and destruction to be done because he wanted there to be mourning when he passed, even though that mourning was not going to be for him. I mean, that's the depth of wickedness that we see displayed on this king. And so as we read Matthew chapter 2, it reminds us we live in a world where there is much hope and beauty and expectation, but it is also a world that is broken and there is much that we grieve and that does not make sense. And there are wicked rulers in high places who have the power to do terrible things and that grieves our hearts and at times when I'll have conversations with people who are honest and I appreciate it when they say I'm not sure what I really believe about God and whether I believe about God I'll tell them well while we're talking about it let me also tell you not only do I believe in a God but I believe in a devil like which is even weirder to some people at times but when I look upon the world and see the level of sin and wickedness that does exist, I believe that behind that is not just human pride or anger, but that there are spiritual forces at play. And many times we might think that those temptations only exist when we're uh, determining, if you will, ourselves to be rebellious and to do our own thing. And so that's when bad things happen. But actually, uh, the, you discover pretty quickly that the moment you actually try to do something better or do something right, or as it's a new year coming tomorrow, set a resolution, the moment you set a resolution, set a goal, say, I'm going to do something better, I'm going to try harder, that begins to reveal a level of frustration that you did not expect and opposition that is so hard to explain. Why is it when we try to do the right thing that it feels like the opposition comes? Well, when we read Matthew chapter 2, one of the things it's supposed to remind us of is that's the reality all throughout Scripture. And if that was true for the Son of God who came into this world, that's going to be true for you and me. 
There is always opposition to God's kingdom coming in our life and in our world. There is always temptation that we're facing. We can never sort of just hit cruise control and think everything's just going to be smooth sailing from here on out. We have an enemy who wants to bring us down. And that happens at times when we're trying so hard to do the right thing so that he can knock us off track in a little bit of a lighthearted way. So this morning, I was responsible to get all the kids ready uh, for church, and I'm pretty determined that we're going to be on time. And then we had the opportunity to pick somebody else up and bring them to church with us. And so, okay, we've set a time. We're going to do it. Amy came early for practice. And so she also anticipated knowing that it's 99% of the time her responsibility to do this. So even before she left, she had outfits picked out for every one of them. And it was like, yes, this is, this is all going to happen, right? It's our intention to get to church, to get there on time. We've thought about it ahead of time. And I get them all dressed, and we're, we're making good progress. And then it was time to do their hair. And then one of them had bedhead that was just amazing. And I looked at it, and I said, oh, no. This is the kind that only comes out with prayer and fasting. Like, I don't know that I have enough water or hairspray or something to make this work. But this is... We're now interrupting the flow of whether we're going to be on time or not. And I just experienced that as a, for everything that I had tried to do to be on time, there's always things that come up. The moment you, you decide that you want to uh, be more self-restrained in your spending and in your finances, and you want to commit to living on a budget, boom, something happens in your car and it's a bill you didn't expect. Or something happens with the furnace at your house and you're like, I just decided that I was going to shop a little bit less and save a little bit more. And do. Why, does, why is this new thing happening? And that, that repeats itself in many different ways. In marriage relationships, in work, in, in all kinds of ways in our lives. The gospel story reminds us, and the reason that this is included is to tell us there is always opposition to the kingdom coming. There's always difficulties that we have to overcome. Our hymn of the week uh, for this week as we've been finishing out the year was a song I'd forgot about because I hadn't sung it, sung it in a really, really long time. Um, but it was a song I remembered singing only occasionally, I think at like summer camps. But it was surely goodness and mercy. Uh, but that song, it starts, A pilgrim was I in a wandering, and in the dark night of sin I did roam. till so Jesus, the kind shepherd, found me. And then now I'm on my way home, I believe. And, and it sings the, the refrain of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then in another verse, though I walk through the dark, lonesome valley, my Savior will walk with me there. Right? They need to hear that part of the song, not just the chorus that says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, but they also need the reminder that there will be times where we're going through the dark, lonesome valley. And it's actually in those times that we need to remember the most that his goodness and mercy are still following us, that he's still with us. And so here we see wickedness uh, truthfully displayed, not glorified, we see it in its ugliness so that hopefully in our own hearts we would uh, be caused to think again and say, God, I don't, I don't want to give in to a little so that a little doesn't become a lot and doesn't intensify in the way that it did in the life of Herod. 
that he would do things that no rational person could possibly think or understand to do. This is depravity on display. And when we see it, sometimes in its fullness is, is what it takes to cause us to say, God, help me to resist it. Help me to say no to it. Help me not to give in to it, even in the small ways when I'm tempted in my own heart. And then the last word that I think comes from this chapter is providence. So we see not only wisdom and extravagance, wickedness, but also God's providence. Uh, it, it, would, it would be a disservice if we walked away and said, be more like the wise men and not like Herod, though that's true. If, if you're going to follow somebody in, in Matthew chapter 2, be more like the wise men. But the, the main point of the gospel and then of this chapter within Matthew's gospel is be amazed at the God who's sovereign over all of it. How sovereign does he have to be for wise men from the east to find their way to Jerusalem? And how sovereign and powerful does he have to be that even when somebody as wicked as Herod is so set on the destruction of the Son of God, God can say to him, you can reject me, but you can't thwart me. You can't stop me. You will not prevent the coming of the Savior into this world. You will not keep him from doing what he was sent to do. And there is no level of wickedness in Herod's heart that can ultimately undo the goodness in God to bring about the hope of the world. And these are all different people doing very different things with very different motivations and through it all. And then you have Joseph who's just along the way being told dream by dream, don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do that. Who's over all of that? Who, who's guiding that? Who's leading that ultimately to its end? Who can limit evil and say no more, nothing past this? And who can work behind the scenes as much as up front and on stage to bring about the redemption of the world? God does that. That's what we call providence, that he didn't just create the world and let it go and say, good luck, but that he's watching over the world. In spite of its sin, in spite of its brokenness, there is not a moment that it is out of his view. And there is not a second that he is not working out his ultimate purpose and plan for us and for the glory of his son. And so as much as we see wickedness in its fullness, we're also assured by it that we don't have to live in fear of that because our God is greater than the enemy that resists him. And so he is worthy of our extravagant worship if we have the wisdom to see it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And the reminders that it gives us as we look back at the time of the birth of your Son and our Savior, that when the whole world should have rejoiced and celebrated his coming, we thank you that there were a few. We thank you that there was a remnant, that there were unexpected people who saw the glory and the goodness and gave honor to him. And we grieve, though, the ways that many rejected it, that many chose their own selfishness or pride or wickedness.
and didn't want to submit or surrender to the new king. Father, we pray that you would challenge our own hearts in a million different ways as this year comes to an end and a new one begins, that, that we would desire to honor you and glorify you, that we would desire to creatively worship you and bless you, not just as we're gathered together, but in the ways that we live our lives, that it would be evident to people around us that we have a hope because we serve a new king whose reign will never end. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts when we do face the wickedness of this world, when we see it in our hearts, but when we see it displayed around us, that when many would choose to give up or to despair, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, strengthen us to continue to serve, to continue to love, to continue to care, and to trust that you ultimately, even in the dark, lonesome valleys we will experience, that you promise to go with us there. We thank you that your goodness and your mercy do follow us all the days of our life. And we bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.